are listening to the most original talk radio station anywhere. We are L.A. Talk Radio at latalkradio.com. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. Sapphire Planet. Project Mercury was the first human spaceflight program of the United States, led by its newly created space agency, NASA. It ran from 1959 through 1963 with the goal of putting a human in orbit around the Earth and doing it before the Soviet Union. This was part of the early space race. It involved seven astronauts flying a total of six solo trips. On May 5, 1961, Alan Shepard became the first American in space in a suborbital flight after the Soviet Union had put Yuri Gagarin into space and orbit one month earlier. John Glenn became the first American to reach orbit on February 20, 1962. He was the third person to do so after Soviet German Titov made a day-long flight in August 1961. When the project ended in May 1963, the American's NASA program was still behind the Soviet space program. But the gap was seen as closing. The race to the moon had begun. The space race started in 1957 by the launch of the Soviet satellite Sputnik 1. This came as a shock to the American public and led to the creation of NASA to gather the efforts in space exploration already existing in the United States. After the launch of the first American satellite in 1958, manned spaceflight became the next goal. The spacecraft was produced by McDonald Aircraft. It was cone-shaped, with room for one person, together with supplies of water, food, and oxygen in a pressurized cabin. It was launched from Cape Canaveral in Florida by modified military missiles. Mostly, importantly, they were Atlas Ds. And they had a rescue tower for protection from a failing rocket. The whole flight could be controlled from the ground through a network of tracking stations, which also allowed communications with the astronaut. If necessary, the astronaut could override commands from the ground. 
for re-entry into Earth's atmosphere, small rockets were used to bring the spacecraft out of its orbit. A heat shield would protect the spacecraft from the heat of re-entry, and a parachute would slow the craft for a water landing. Here, both astronauts and spacecraft were picked up by helicopter and brought to a ship. From a slow start with humiliating mistakes, the Mercury Project became popular and the man flights were followed by millions on radio and TV, not only in the United States, but around the world. Apart from the manned missions, Mercury had a total of 20 unmanned launches as part of the development of the project. This also involved test animals, most famously the chimpanzees Ham and Enos. Mercury laid the groundwork for Project Gemini and the follow-on Apollo moon landing program, which was announced a few weeks after the first manned flight. The astronauts went under the name Mercury 7, and they named their spacecraft with a 7 to the name. The project name was taken from Mercury, a Roman god. It estimated to have cost, in today's dollars, $1.7 billion, and have involved the work of 2 million people. Project Mercury was officially approved on October 7, 1958, and publicly announced on December 17, 1958. Originally, it was called Project Astronaut, but President Eisenhower thought that it gave too much attention to the pilot. Instead, the name Mercury was chosen from the Greek-Roman mythology, which already lent names to rockets like Atlas and Jupiter. It absorbed military projects with the same aim such as the Air Force Man in Space Soonest Project. Following the end of World War II, a nuclear arms race evolved between the U.S. and the Soviet Union to develop long-range missiles. At the same time, both sides also developed satellites for espionage. Most of this took place in secret. Therefore, it came to a shock to the U.S. public when the Soviet Union placed the first satellite into orbit in October 1957, and there was a growing fear in the U.S. that it was falling behind. A month later, the Soviets launched a dog into orbit, and though it was not retained, it was obvious that they were striving at manned spaceflight. Unable to tell the public about the progress of military space projects, President Eisenhower decided to create a civilian space agency, NASA, based on NACA, a Federal Aeronautical Research Agency. NASA should take care of civilian and scientific space exploration, and after having orbited an American satellite in 1958, the next goal became to put a man in space. The limit of space was defined as an altitude of 62 miles or 100 kilometers and the only way to reach it was by rocket. This created risk for the pilots including explosion, 
subjection to high g-force and vibrations during liftoff through the atmosphere. In space, the pilot would experience zero gravity, a condition where he might suffer from disorientation. In this altitude, he had to be in a pressurized chamber or suit and supplied with fresh air. Further possible risks were radiation from space and micrometeoroids from which the air would normally protect him here on Earth. At re-entry to the denser part of the atmosphere, air friction would heat the spacecraft to more than 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit or 5,500 degrees centigrade. All these obstacles, however, seemed possible to overcome. Experience from satellites suggested that the risk from micrometeoroids was negligible. As to the medical questions, experiments in the early 1950s, which simulated weightlessness and high g-forces on humans, together with experiments of sending animals to the limits of space, gave the conclusion that problems could be overcome by known technology. Finally, re-entry was studied with nuclear warheads of ballistic missiles. From this, the best solution to the heating problem was found to be a blunt heat shield facing the direction of movement during re-entry since it created a shock wave that let most of the heat flow around the spacecraft or warhead. T. Keith Glennon had been appointed administrator of NASA with Hugh L. Dryden, who was the director of NACA. His deputy from the creation of the agency on October 1, 1958. Glennon would report to the president through the National Aeronautics and Space Council. The group responsible for Project Mercury was NASA's Space Task Group, and the goals of the program were to orbit a manned spacecraft around Earth, investigate the pilot's ability to function in space, and to recover both pilot and spacecraft safely. Existing technology and off-the-shelf equipment should be used wherever practical. The simplest and most reliable approach to system design would be followed. An existing launch vehicle would be employed together with a progressive test program. Spacecraft requirements included a launch escape system to separate the spacecraft and its occupant from the launch vehicle in case of impending failure. Attitude control for orientation of spacecraft in orbit. A retro rocket system to bring the spacecraft out of orbit. Drag braking, blunt body for atmospheric reentry, And landing on water. To communicate with the spacecraft during the orbital mission, a new network had to be built. Twelve companies bid to build the Mercury spacecraft on a $20 million contract. That would be $160 million in today's dollars. In January 1959, McDonald Aircraft Corporation was chosen to be prime contractor for the spacecraft. Two weeks earlier, North American Aviation, based in Los Angeles, was awarded a contract 
to Little Joe, a small rocket for development of its launch escape system. The worldwide tracking network for communication between ground and spacecraft during a flight was awarded to Western Electric Company. Redstone rockets for suborbital launches were manufactured in Huntsville, Alabama by the Chrysler Corporation. And Atlas rockets at Convair, San Diego, California. For man launches, the Atlantic Missile Range at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida was made available by the U.S. Air Force. This was also the site of Mercury Control Center, while the computing center of the communication network was in Goddard Space Center in Maryland. Little Joe developing rockets were launched at Wallops Island, Virginia. Astronaut training took place at Langley Research Center, Lewis Flight Propulsion Laboratory, Cleveland, and Naval Air Development Center in Johnsonville. Langley wind tunnels, together with a rocket sledge track at Holloman Air Force Base in Almogordo, were used for aerodynamic studies. Both Navy and Air Force airplanes were made available for development of the landing system of the spacecraft and Navy ships and helicopters were made available for recovery. South of Cape Canaveral, the town of Cocoa Beach boomed. From here, 75,000 people watched the first American orbital flight being launched in 1962. The principal designer of the Mercury spacecraft was Max Faget, who started research for manned spaceflight during the time of NACA. The spacecraft was 10.8 feet long and 6 feet wide. With the launch escape system added, the overall length was 25.9 feet with 100 cubic feet of habitable volume the spacecraft was just large enough for the single crew member. Inside were 120 controls, 55 electrical switches, 30 fuses, and 35 mechanical levers. The heaviest spacecraft, Mercury Atlas 9, weighed fully loaded 3,000 pounds, or 1,400 kilograms. Its outer skin was made of Rene 41, a nickel alloy able to withstand high temperatures. The spacecraft was shaped with a cone with a neck in the narrow end. It had a convex base, which was its heat shield. It was composed of an aluminum honeycomb structure between covered with a multiple layer of fiberglass. Strapped to it was the Retropack, which had its name from three rockets meant to break the spacecraft for re-entry. Between these, there were three minor rockets for separating the spacecraft from the launch vehicle at insertion into orbit. The straps that held the package could be severed when it was no longer needed. Next to the heat shield came the pressurized crew compartment. This contained the astronaut strapped into his couch with the instruments in front of him and his back to the heat shield. Underneath the seat was the environmental control system, which supplied him with oxygen and heat. 
The system also cleaned the air of CO2 vapor and odors, as well as, on orbital flights, collect urine. The recovery compartment at the narrow end of the spacecraft containing three parachutes, one drogue to stabilize freefall, and two main parachutes, of which only one was used and the other was a reserve. Between the heat shield and the inner wall of the crew compartment, there was a landing skirt, which was deployed by letting down the heat shield before landing. On top of the recovery compartment was an antenna section containing antennas for communications with Earth and scanners for guiding the orientation of the spacecraft. Attached to it was a flap used to ensure the right heat shield first direction during re-entry. A launch escape system was mounted on the narrow end of the spacecraft. In case of failure during the first minutes of launch, it would fire a solid fuel rocket for a second to bring the spacecraft free of the launch vehicle so it could deploy its parachute and land at sea. The astronaut sat with his back to the heat shield in a seat which was molded from his body for maximum support. As a safety measure, he wore a pressure suit with its own oxygen supply, which could also cool him. An atmosphere of pure oxygen was easier to control than one with the same composition as at air at ground level, so they used pure oxygen. To put out a fire, the astronauts had to empty the compartment of oxygen. Should air pressure from the compartment fail due to puncturing by micrometeoroids or other reasons, astronauts could still make an emergency return to Earth, relying on their suit for survival. The astronauts normally flew with the visor up, which meant that the suit was not inflated. With the visor down and the suit inflated, the astronaut could only reach the side and bottom panels where vital buttons and handles accordingly were placed. Cabin pressure was equivalent to an altitude of 18 to 25,000 feet or 5,500 to 7,500 meters. Across his chest, electrodes were placed to record his heart rhythms. A cuff could take his blood pressure and a rectal thermometer his temperature. This would be replaced by a mouth thermometer on the last flight. Data from these were sent to the ground during the flight. For orientation, he could look through the window in front of him or from a screen connected to a periscope which could be turned 360 degrees. The astronaut normally drank water and ate food pellets. In orbit, the spacecraft could be rotated in three directions. Along the longitudinal axis of the spacecraft, known as roll, from left to right, as seen from the astronaut, which is known as yaw, and up and down, as seen from the astronaut, which is pitch. Movement was created by thrusters using peroxide as fuel. The movements and other functions of the spacecraft could be controlled in three ways. Remotely from the ground when passing a ground station, automatically guided by its own instruments, or manually by the astronaut himself, who could replace 
or override the two other methods. The astronaut, in his left hand, held an abort handle that could release the launch escape system if the automatic system failed. The astronauts had taken part in the development of the spacecraft and they required the manual control by the astronaut together with the window in the front of the astronaut. John Glenn's manual attitude adjustment during his first orbital flight were an example of the value of such control. Spacecraft design was modified three times by NACA and NASA in the 1958-1959 transition period before the final shape was found. At the time of bidding for spacecraft contractor in November 1958, it was the third approach named C, which was suggested by NASA and which the winning bid was based on. This was changed to the final configuration called D after having failed a test flight in July 1959. The shape of the heat shield had been found earlier in 1950s by experiments with ballistic missiles which had shown that a blunt heat shield would create a shock wave which would lead most of the heat around the spacecraft. To further protect against heat, either a heat sink or a material could be added to the shield. The heat sink would remove the heat by the flow of the air inside the shock wave, whereas the heat shield would remove the heat by a controlled evaporation of a asbestos-like material. After unmanned tests, the latter was chosen for the manned flight. Apart from the capsule design, a rocket plane similar to the existing X-15 was considered. This approach was still too far from being able to make a space flight and consequently dropped. The heat shield and the stability of the spacecraft were tested in wind tunnels and later in flight. The launch escape system was developed by unmanned flights. An alternative concept for landing system involving the use of a glider instead of a parachute was considered but never got into use. The spacecraft were produced at McDonald Aircraft, St. Louis, Missouri, in a clean room and tested the same place in vacuum chambers. They had close to 600 subcontractors, for instance. Garrett Air Research for the Environmental Control System. Final quality control and preparation of the spacecraft were made at Hangar S at Cape Canaveral. NASA ordered 20 production spacecraft numbered 1 through 20. Five of the 20, numbers 10, 12, 15, 17, and 19, were not flown. Spacecraft number 3 and number 4 were destroyed during unmanned flights. Spacecraft number 11 sank and was recovered from the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean 38 years later. Some spacecraft were modified after initial production, refurbished after launch abort, for example, modified for a longer mission, and so on. A number of Mercury boilerplate spacecraft. These are made from non-flight materials or lacking production spacecraft systems. Were also made by NASA and McDonald Aircraft.
They were designed and used to taste, test spacecraft recovery systems and escape towers. McDonald also supplied the project's function trainers for the astronauts. The Mercury program used two launch vehicles for manned missions. The most important was the Atlas LV-3B, or otherwise known as the Atlas D. It was a two-stage liquid fuel rocket for orbital flight. It was developed by Convair in San Diego for the Air Force in the mid-1950s and it was fueled with liquid oxygen and kerosene. It was 67 feet tall, or 20 meters, in itself and with the spacecraft and the launch escape system, including the adapter that held both to the launch vehicle. Its total length was 95 feet, or 29 meters. The first stage was a booster skirt with two thrusters using liquid fuel from the sustainer stage. This, together with the bigger sustainer stage, gave it sufficient power to launch an orbital mission. Both stages fired from liftoff until staging of the booster. The sustainer threw an opening in the booster. After staging, the sustainer stage continued alone. The sustainer also steered the rocket by a movable thruster guided by gyroscope. Smaller rockets were added on its side for precise control of maneuvers. The hull was paper thin made of stainless steel and had to be kept under constant internal pressure by fuel or helium in order for the rocket not to collapse. This meant that the airframe of the launch vehicle could be reduced to 2% of the weight of the fuel. The Atlas D rocket required extra strengthening in order to handle the increased weight of the Mercury spacecraft beyond that of the nuclear warheads they were designed for. Its internal guidance system also had to be moved accordingly to its greater length. The Titan missile was also considered for later Mercury missions, but did not get ready in time. The Atlas was flown to Cape Canaveral and transported to the launch pad on a dolly. At the launch pad, Rocket and Dolly were lifted to a vertical position by the service tower and the Atlas was then held by clamps to the launch pad. The other launch vehicle was the Mercury Redstone launch vehicle which was 83 feet high or 25 meters in height. This included the spacecraft and the escape system. It was a one-stage launch vehicle used for suborbital ballistic flights. It had a liquid-fueled engine that burned alcohol and liquid oxygen to producing about 75,000 pounds of thrust, which was not enough for orbital missions. It was a descendant of the German V-2 and developed for the Army in the early 1950s and modified for Project Mercury by removing the warhead and adding a collar for supporting the spacecraft together with material for dampening vibrations during the launch. Its rocket motor was produced by North American Aviation and its direction could be altered during flight through the atmosphere by its fins. Both the Atlas D and the Redstone launch vehicles contain automatic abort sensing systems which allowed them to abort a launch by firing the launch escape system if something went wrong. 
The Jupiter rocket, a relative of the Redstone, was originally considered for the suborbital launch vehicle, but was replaced by the Redstone in July 1959 due to budget constraints. A smaller launch vehicle, 55 feet high, or 17 meters, called Little Joe, which carried a Mercury spacecraft with an escape tower mounted on it, was used for unmanned tests of the launch escape system. Especially, it was to test the system at a point called Max-Q, at which air pressure against the spacecraft peaked, making separation of launch vehicle and spacecraft most difficult. It was also the point at which the astronaut was subjected to the heaviest vibrations. Little Joe had a solid fuel propellant and was designed in 1958 by NACA for suborbital manned flights, but redesigned for Mercury to simulate the flight of the Atlas D. It was produced by North American Aviation. It was not able to change direction. Instead, its flight depended on the angle for which it was launched. The maximum altitude was 100 miles or 160 kilometers fully loaded. A scout launch vehicle was used for a single flight intended to evaluate the tracking network. However, it failed and was destroyed from the ground shortly after liftoff. NASA announced the selection of the seven astronauts, known as the Mercury 7, on April 9, 1959. These were Malcolm Scott Carpenter, U.S. Navy, 1925-2013, through 2013. Leroy Gordon Gordo Cooper, Jr., U.S. Air Force, 1927-2004, John Herschel Glenn, Jr., U.S. Marine Corps, 1921, date of birth. Virgil Ivan Gus Grissom, U.S. Air Force, 1926-1967. Walter Marty Wally Sharara, Jr., U.S. Navy, 1923 to 2007. Alan Bartlett Shepard, Jr., U.S. Navy, 1923-1998. Donald Kent Deke Slayton, U.S. Air Force, 1924-1993. These were the men of Project Mercury who became the astronauts. Shepard became the first American in space by making a suborbital flight in May 1961. He went on to fly the Apollo program. Gus Grissom also participated in the Gemini and Apollo programs, but died in 1967 during Apollo 1 pre-launch tests. Glenn became the first American into orbit the Earth in February 1962. He quit NASA after the project and went into politics. He did very well for himself, becoming a senator. Deke Slayton was grounded in 1962. He remained with NASA and flew on the Apollo-Soyuz test project in 1975. Gordon Cooper became the last to fly in the project and made its longest flight and also flew a Gemini mission. Carpenter's Mercury flight was his only project in 1975 trip into space. One of the astronauts' tasks was publicity. They gave interviews to the press and visited project manufacturing facilities to speak with those who worked on Project Mercury. In 
to make their travels easier, they requested and got jet fighters for personal use. Must be nice. The press was especially fond of John Glenn, who was considered the best speaker of the seven. They sold their personal stories to Life magazine, which portrayed them as patriotic, God-fearing, and good family fathers. Life magazine was also allowed to be at home with the families while the astronauts were in space. During the project, Grissom, Carpenter, Cooper, Sharara, and Slayton stayed with their families or near Langley Air Force Base. Glenn lived at the base and visited his family in Washington, D.C. on weekends. Shepard lived with his family at the Naval Air Station in Oceana in Virginia. It was envisioned that the pilot could be any man or woman willing to take a personal risk. On President Eisenhower's insistence, however, the first Americans to venture into space were drawn from a group of 508 military test pilots. This excluded women, since there were no female military test pilots. This also excluded NACA's X-15 pilot and later astronaut Neil Armstrong, since, at the time, he was a civilian. It further stipulated that candidates should be between 25 and 40 years old, not taller than 5 foot 11, and hold a college degree in science or engineering. The college degree requirement excluded NACA's X-1 pilot, Chuck Yeager, the first person to exceed the speed of sound. He later became a critic of the project, ridiculing especially the use of monkeys. Joseph Kittinger, a stratosphere balloonist, met all the requirements but preferred to stay in his contemporary project. Some other potential candidates declined because they did not believe that manned spaceflight had a future beyond Project Mercury. From the original 508, 110 candidates were selected for interview, and from the interview, 32 were selected for further physical and mental training. Their health, vision, and hearing were examined, together with tolerance to noise, vibrations, G-forces, personal isolation, and heat. A special, in a special chamber, they were tested to see if they could perform their tasks under confusing conditions. The candidates had to answer more than 500 questions about themselves and describe what they saw in different images. Jim Lovell, later astronaut in the Gemini and Apollo 13, did not pass the physical tests. After these tests were intended to narrow the group down to six astronauts, but the end, it was decided to keep seven. The astronauts went through a training program covering some of the same exercises that were used in selection. They simulated the G-force profiles of launch and re-entry in a centrifuge at the Naval Air Development Center and were taught special breathing techniques necessary when subjugated to more than 6G. Weightlessness training took place in aircraft, first on the rear seat of a two-seated fighter, and later inside converted and padded cargo aircrafts. They practiced gaining control of the spinning aircraft in a machine at the Lewis Flight Propulsion Laboratory called the Multi-Axis Spin Test Inertia Facility, or MASTIF, by using an altitude control handle simulating one in the spacecraft. A further measure for finding the right altitude in orbit was star and earth recognition training in planetariums and simulators. 
communication, and flight procedures were practiced in flight simulators, first together with a single assistance and later together with mission control. Recovery was practiced in pools at Langley and later at sea with frogmen and helicopter crews. Project Mercury had two kinds of missions, suborbital and orbital. The orbital missions was the most important. Suborbital missions were meant as practice and a quick way to break the space limit. In a suborbital mission, the Redstone rocket lifted the spacecraft for 2 minutes 30 seconds to an altitude of 37 miles or 60 kilometers, separated from it and let it continue on a ballistic curve. At the summit, the retro rockets were fired, though it was not necessary, and the spacecraft fell down to Earth and landed in the ocean, like on an orbital mission. The only difference was the collar put around the spacecraft after landing, which was not ready for suborbital missions. A suborbital mission took about 15 minutes, had an altitude of about 118 miles, and a downrange of about 302 miles. Preparation for missions started months in advance with the selection of primary and backup astronaut. Together, they would practice for the mission. For three days prior to the launch, the astronaut had gone through a special diet to minimize his need for defecating during the flight. On the morning of the trip, however, he typically ate a steak breakfast. Having having sensors applied to his body and being dressed in a pressure suit, he started breathing pure oxygen to prepare himself for the atmosphere of the spacecraft. He arrived at the launch pad, took the elevator up to the launch tower, and entered the spacecraft two hours before the launch. Well inside, the hatch was bolted, the launch area evacuated, and the mobile tower rolled back. After this, the launch vehicle was filled with liquid oxygen. The entire procedure of preparing for launch and launching the spacecraft into orbit followed a timetable called Countdown. It started a day in advance with a pre-count in which all systems of the launch vehicle and spacecraft were checked out. After that, followed a 15-hour hold during which the pyrotechnics were installed. Then came the main countdown, which for orbital flights started six and a half hours before launch. T minus 390 minutes. Counted backwards to launch, T minus zero minutes, and then forward until insertion. Example, T plus five minutes. On an orbital mission, rocket engines were ignited four seconds before liftoff. The launch vehicle was held by the ground by clamps and then released when sufficient thrust was built up or at liftoff. After 30 seconds of flight, the point of highest air pressure against the vehicle was passed at which the astronaut felt heavy vibrations. Booster stage was spent and released after 2 minutes 10 seconds. At this point, the launch escape system was no longer needed and separated from the spacecraft by its jettison rocket. The launch vehicle moved gradually to a horizontal attitude during launch until an altitude of 100 miles. The spacecraft was inserted into orbit. This happened after 5 minutes 10 seconds in a direction pointing east whereby the spacecraft would gain speed from the rotation of the Earth. Here, the spacecraft fired three post-grade rockets for one second to separate it from the launch vehicle. Just before orbital insertion, G-load peaked at 8 Gs and cut off rocket engines. In orbit, the spacecraft automatically turned 180 degrees, pointed the retrograde packet forward and its nose at 14.5 degrees downward, and kept this altitude for the rest of the orbit. 
Once in orbit, it was not possible to change the trajectory except by initiating re-entry. When leaving orbit, the spacecraft retro-rockets fired for 10 seconds each, in a sequence where one started 5 seconds after the other. During re-entry, the astronauts would experience about 8G. The temperatures around the heat shield rose to 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. At the same time, there was a two-minute radio blackout due to ionization of air ground the spacecraft. After that, a small drag parachute was then deployed and the capsule floated safely into the ocean. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet? Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.